Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome back to The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett, the creator and host. If you get a chance, run over to thelastsymptom.com to take advantage of the many free resources that I offer. While you are there, if you'd like to make a financial donation to support my overall body of work, you can do that securely right from the site. How about if we talk about black and white thinking? Why are people with borderline personality disorder inclined to black and white thinking? Well, part of it is creating order out of chaos. I remember after every tremendous uh, emotionally destructive argument that I would have with my parents, every clash that would just send me uh, emotionally, leave me emotionally crushed. What I would do immediately after is I would rearrange my bedroom <laughs> or I would clean it. And I told my friend Will, I, he had experienced some uh, abusive relationships with his dad. And I had told him one time that I, I did this. I, I like to clean my room. And he said, well, you know why you do that, right? And I said, no. And he said, you're making order out of chaos. <clears throat> Excuse me. So your, uh, your whole life may be chaos, but it brings you some peace to clean up your bedroom because it gives you a sense of order and control over your life and structure. I've never forgotten about that. And you know what? I think he was dead on correct. So there's that. But uh, people with black and white thinking are also, they love that structure. And black and white thinking provides structure. It also saves you from the possibility of further emotional pain. If, for example, you're applying that black and white thinking to a person. Oh, they're bringing me pain. Uh, or maybe they're going to leave me. What I can do right now with what's in my power is to just, I'll just eject them from my life and then I won't have to worry about being left or dumped in the future. One tremendously beneficial result of my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder, a natural product of escaping the distorted thinking that is at the root of the whole disorder was gaining the enlightenment that almost nothing in life is black or white. And you know, because of the explanations I just gave for why people with borderline personality disorder cling to black and white thinking in the first place for the security of the structure that it brings, it's absolutely this way or it's absolutely that way and there's no gray area in between. Even though 
uh, I've explained it this way, and it seems kind of contradictory, it's very liberating to escape that. It's very, very liberating to escape that. We'll talk about that a little bit. So, I gained the enlightenment that almost nothing in life is black or white. Almost everything you can imagine is relative or subjective. Now, this isn't a science program. It's a program about life lessons. Still, for analogy, consider this. Even within the laws of the universe, most everything is relative. When we say something's relative, it means there is no concrete this way or that way. It's all subjective. A concrete exception to this is the fastest a thing can travel, which is the speed of light. This is a non-subjective, concrete limitation. Nothing, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And yet, the very fabric of space itself is expanding faster than the speed of light travels. What this means is that entire galaxies are speeding away from us faster than light can travel. This is so amazing. It means our telescopes are limited permanently. There are things out there we will never be able to see because the light from those events are too far away from us to ever reach us. And they're moving so quickly away from us that the light will never be able to reach us. And light is what we use to observe the universe. Incredible. So in one moment, we established a non-subjective certainty. And in the very next moment, the universe revealed new realities, which didn't break the earlier law, but instead completely changed the game in which that law exists. Incredible. Have you ever heard of the latter paradox? The latter paradox is a good example of the subjective nature of the physical universe. To explain the concept in my own words, it goes like this. If you take a 30-foot ladder, so you got a ladder, it's 30 feet long, and you try to stick it straight into a shed that is only 20 feet in length, the ladder won't fit, will it? Wrong. The conditions have to be right for that ladder not to fit. If the ladder is moving fast enough in relation to the shed, when it enters the shed, the ladder, the 30-foot ladder, will fit perfectly into the 20-foot barn. You can even shut both doors to the shed with the ladder closed up inside. The reason for this is something called length contraction, which occurs the faster a thing travels. It's not that a thing compresses as it moves faster. Rather, the reality, the very reality in which it exists, contracts in relation to the reality which exists outside its frame of reference. This happens to you 
Yes, you. Every time you travel on an airplane, though it happens to a very small degree. Speaking of traveling on an airplane, did you know that when you land, you are slightly behind in time in relation to the people who stayed on the ground? It's true. Because the faster a thing travels, the slower time moves for it. Also, the closer you are to a gravitational force, which is the Earth, the Earth is the center point for the gravitational force, the slower time moves for you. The greater the gravitational force, the slower time moves. A real-life application of this is in the way mathematicians have to take into consideration when they station GPS satellites in the Earth's orbit. See, on the one hand, those satellites are traveling so fast, so much faster than bullets fired from a gun, that time is moving more slowly for them compared to our GPS units or phones here on the ground. On the other hand, you and I are much closer to the Earth's gravity than those satellites are, which slows time for us in relation to the satellite. So the mathematicians have to factor in all of these things and work out all the differences so that when you type a destination into your GPS unit, it gives you an accurate time of arrival projection for the reality you currently inhabit. In fact, they must regularly readjust the clocks on the satellites that are already up there because the real-life time traveling that they are experiencing is in fact that measurable. This is not science fiction. This is the truth. Pretty incredible, right? Now, I promised that this wasn't a science program although there are a million other examples highlighting the same subjective nature of reality, but let me cut to the chase. The point of all this is this. If even the physical laws of the universe are so relative and subjective, how can I possibly stand here and argue with you that I'm right and you're wrong about what the best movie of all time is, or about which political idealization is best? or about what the best way to do something is, or about what styles of clothing look good or bad, or about whether you have a good reason to be upset or not, or about anything. Murder is bad, unless doing it would save 8 billion other lives. Feeding the hungry is good, right? Unless... You're taking food from your own starving children to do it. Animal cruelty is bad. Don't we all agree? Unless you're trying to free somebody from the jaws of a crocodile. Take almost any black and white certainty you walk around with and put it to the test. You'll see that there are exceptions, exceptions that are not far-fetched or unusual, that entirely change the reality of your black and white conclusions. Mistreating people is bad. 
So is the person who habitually does it a bad person? Well, more information is needed. Does the person mistreat others because, as an innocent child, he was given an unhealthy, distorted emotional education, and now as an adult, it's the only life perspective he has with which to interpret the world and navigate within it? Or was he given an emotionally healthy upbringing, and he now simply chooses to mistreat others because he takes pleasure in it? Both scenarios are entirely probable, and yet it's not the thing that is the abuse itself, which can appropriately classify the person as good or bad. Rather, it's the context which determines this, right? We don't even know, for example, if the person doing the abuse is content doing it, making no effort to change, or if it's somebody who recognizes that that abuse is wrong and is doing everything he can to change it. If the abusive person was raised by emotionally unhealthy parents, the question then becomes this, are they bad? How did the parents become people who were capable of mistreating their own children, either intentionally or unintentionally, in such disgusting ways? Likely, they were also raised the same way, so the grandparents must be the ones to blame for it all, yeah? But how did they get that way? Here's the takeaway point, the factor it all boils down to. The principle that it is not the thing which determines a person's goodness or badness, but rather two factors in combination. Capacity plus willingness. Willingness can also be substituted with the word sincerity or genuineness. So let's say it again. It's not the thing which determines a person's goodness or badness. Rather, there are two factors in combination which determine a person's goodness or badness. Capacity plus willingness. And willingness can be substituted with sincerity or genuineness. If a person does not have a capacity for something, they can't realistically be expected to carry it out. In this case, we're talking about change. If you'd like to read more about this, you can go to thelastsymptom.com, go to Articles in the top menu, and look for the article, How Your Inability to Play the Fiddle Can Teach You What You're Capable Of. Now notice that capacity is not the same as ability. Your ability can be affected by what you know or you don't know. One's capacity, on the other hand, is not affected by what you know or don't know. And ignorance, ignorance is not an excuse when one has the capacity to know better. Let's say it again. Ignorance, your parents' ignorance, your ignorance, is no excuse when one has the capacity to know better. This brings us to willingness. Given an opportunity, will a person be willing to use their capacity to emerge from ignorance, to learn, to make changes, to evolve, and so forth? It's this information 
not what one has done or has not done, which defines a person's character. Capacity combined with willingness or sincerity are the ingredients determining the nature of your character, not necessarily the things you do or fail to do. Yes, very few things are black and white. Most everything is subjective and relative. The dirty details, context, matters more in any scenario than the thing itself. The next time you get emotionally worked up in a discussion over something, try remembering that your perspective is very, very subjective. Think of the universe and of how almost nothing is absolute. In fact, pull back. When you're in a situation or a conversation that's getting heated, pull back from it. Pull back. Try to see it from a different vantage point, the greater picture of things. And try remembering that your perspective is very, very subjective. How can you not feel absolutely ridiculous being inflexible with other much, much more subjective and petty things? Then approach the thing that's getting you worked up again, this time imagining yourself as viewing it from a different vantage point in the universe or from what I do is I try to imagine myself from God's point of view. <laughs> if you're an atheist, you can do this. Just imagine yourself from an aerial point of view, how everything relates to everything else. F try to find the broader context, the the importance as it relates to the broader scheme of things. Try to approach the subject with more information, which you did not have the first time. The entire story might change. Alan Dershowitz, he's a famous Harvard law professor, tells a parable, and the parable goes like this. A rabbi is asked to settle a marital dispute he hears the husband's view. You're right, he tells him. And then he hears the wife's view. You're right, he tells her. One of his students protests. Rabbi, they both can't be right. The rabbi nods. You're right, he says. Pretty liberating stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening to today's program. Please visit thelastsymptom.com while you're there. If you'd like to leave me a donation, you can. And if you're interested in scheduling a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, that can be done right from thelastsymptom.com. I hope you have the best week of all weeks of all time of all the history of mankind. And this is Brian Barnett signing off. As always, thanks for listening.